Take it away, Chris. Everyone, my name's Chris Oakley. Oh, is that me? So, and, well, my name yeah, is. I should have said that. My name is not Chris <laughs> Oakley. My name is Richard Johnson, formerly known as Rich Johnson. Um, and that's that's a good intro. I like that. It's going well so far. <laughs> How do we do uh, this again? <laughs> you never lose it, do you? Really? No, I lost it. And, and this is the Football Attic Rewind, where every month we'll be looking back to see what was going on in the world of football at various randomly chosen points in the past, with the help of archive television footage. Now, it may be that you're familiar with a blog site that Rich and I produced between 2011 and 2015 called the Football Attic, and if so, you'll know that we love our football nostalgia. So, what better way to take our minds off the ills of the world? than by settling down to watch an old episode of Match of the Day or the Big Match, marvelling as we surely will at the goals, the players, the kits, even the presenters and the title sequences that ingrained themselves on our formative years. Very soon, we'll be doing just that. But first of all, let me check in with my attic associate, my capable companion, Rich Johnson. How are you, sir? I'm all right. Um, but did we say this is called re-e-wind when the crowd say bow? <laughs> oh, so you... you... I was like a, I was like a high five that you left me hanging there, Chris. <laughs> Selector is what you should have said, obviously. There, Thank indeed. You, yes, Selector. Ah, there we go. Bit of early two thousands for you, with Craig David. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I'm fine. All of apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Craig. Uh, that's just washed right over my head. I'm afraid Come on, I can Kez. tell you right now. <laughs> you're, you're you're okay as uh, as regards the, the the things that are going on in the world at the moment. You're well, you're healthy and happy, and all the rest of it. I, I, I wouldn't hope. say I was healthy, but I never have been. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I've, I've had my first COVID jab. I'm just I'm probably about six weeks away from the second one, so that's good. Um, right. Yeah, good. other than that, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. You splendid. Good news. I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. Um, I should probably point out for those people that don't know who I am and haven't heard me for a long time and everything. Yes, I am speaking to you from New Zealand. I moved here from the UK in 2012. Uh, some of you listening in will probably already know that, but I always have to make that clear right at the start of any such project as this. Uh, therefore, um, yeah, I will try not to brag about the fact that COVID-19 isn't much of a big deal for me, uh, but that's just because I'm lucky enough to end up in the right country when all this was going on. But um, Chris is had- a traitor. Is basically what he's saying. Um, there. He is a traitor to the motherland, uh, and he should well, be castigated forthwith. <laughs> no, I just, I, I just was lucky enough to roll the right number on the dice when the time came, and here I am. And I've had no such vaccinations. I, I know not when that will happen for me. Um, I'm sure it will happen at some point, but um, life has been annoyingly normal, probably from your point of view, for for, for me at least. So um, yeah, no complaints here. What's it like having much, a competent but- prime minister? We haven't had one for years, so I don't know. So I'm told, yeah. Um, bit of politics. Bit of politics. It's pretty good. Yeah, we won't get into politics, but. No, let's um, not do that. No, but. Um, let's but rewind to back to a time when yes. uh, the Tories were in power 
and ruining the country. <laughs> oh, wait, is it last week? Or is it the 80s? <laughs> hey, hey, bit of we haven't rewound very far. Got to get a double seat. Oh, no. <sighs> bit of Ben Holton for you there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, folks, yes, on today's podcast... Uh, we're going back to uh, review an old episode of the BBC's Match of the Day from the 19th of September 1981. If you're wondering what that episode was like, you're in luck because it's on YouTube and we will be providing a link to it wherever you download this episode. So you can watch the video, you can see what we're talking about and wallow in nostalgia like us. Um, but uh, before we get into all that, Rich, September 19th, 1981, how old were you at that time and what would have been going on in your life back then? Uh, I would have been six. <laughs> so, ah, um, bless. Uh, well, it was just after uh, Charles and Di got married, wasn't it? Um, Not long, yes. Yeah, yes. so the, the world was a hopeful place there, full of hope for a, a long lasting, happy marriage. Um, mm. How did that work out? Spoiler alert! <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, so I was six. Uh, I was. I would have been listening to Chart Hits eighty one on the old cassette player. Um, hey. uh, <laughs> um, and that's about all I can remember, really, because I was six. I don't, and I wasn't into football, so I wasn't watching football. So this isn't so much nostalgia for me as first time, <laughs> first time viewing. Yeah. See, what we should have done is one of those kind of like, you know, man in Coventry reacts to football from 1981. That would have, We could have just put that out on YouTube. Ooh, and then we could have had like easier. a thumbnail with me going, ah, like that. Because that's what you have to do on YouTube. <laughs> the old clickbait thumbnail. Highly effective. Could have, had like, could have had three and a half million followers by the end of the week. We should have thought that through a bit better, really. <laughs> um, I What was I doing? I was, I'd have been just about 10 years old at the time of this. And I was... In the last, I think I was just starting the last year at junior school before I went on to the big world of comprehensive school and other kids that swore and stuff that was kind of all a bit of a new experience for me because <laughs> I had this kind of cozy little junior school that I used to attend and, and it was all very nice and pleasant and I never heard kids swearing and, and it was all very nice and um, and then yeah comprehensive school changed all that which is probably a, an experience a lot of people had and it was all a bit of a shock to the system but that at this point that hadn't yet happened so I was probably relatively happy um, can't think of much else that was going on really at the, at the time I was kind of uh, yeah I think I was happy enough at the time ignorance is bliss and all that oh yeah yes. and uh, Star Wars figures I'd have had those because the Empire Strikes well, Back came indeed. out the year before so I'd have still been playing with the old Star Wars figures See, I missed all that. I, I was only like six when the first Star Wars film came out, and I can remember other kids playing with the toys. To be fair, because I, I hadn't I seen the film, two. it was just like you might as well have been offering me sort of little figurines of, <laughs> you know, I God knows, like you know, Bulgarian pop stars or something, because it would have had as much relevance to me. And I and I sort of thought, what, what, what who's this hand Solo people, the person that people were talking about at great length? I was well, well I was me. only two when the first one came out, but I, I still went, I still got taken to the cinema to see it, and I vaguely have vague recollections of it, other than running around the cinema to my parents' annoyance. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, I had an older brother, so uh, he was obviously collecting the Star Wars stuff. So we, I got into it with him, and I remember being very excited. I can't believe actually, I'd have only been five when Empire Strikes Back came out. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember it as really enjoying that film. It seems an mm. odd age to enjoy the Empire Strikes Back. Five, <laughs> it's quite young. <laughs> See, I had like mates who had all the, you know, the, the Millennium Falcon and all the. Sorry to go off at a tangent, listeners. <laughs> I know you're here to listen. It's nostalgia to us talking about counts. Football. 
Yeah, it's all part of the grist to the mill, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and they, and they had all the toys, and they'd say, I'll come round and uh, we'll sort of play Star Wars. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what the film is. I don't know who. Millennium what? Uh, I just didn't know any of that stuff. And, and, and yeah, I don't know. You, you were more into playing really. Labour Leader Conference, weren't you? You know, setting the scene <laughs> in the Blackpool, you know, the Winter the Gardens. Blackpool Party Conference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michael Foote uh, making a speech. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully not, actually. But, um, <laughs> yes, there we are. Um, but anyway, um, I guess we are almost ready to um, adjust our goggles and dive off the highboard into the pool of nostalgia that is a 1981 episode of Match of the Day. But uh, to set the scene, I thought we'd basically find out what was going on in the world at the time that this uh, program was broadcast. And uh, to bring up all the information I need, I've acquired a a computer of the day, uh, a Sinclair ZX81, which I think uh, should be more than powerful enough to bring up uh, everything I need to know. Uh, So uh, let's see what it's telling me here. Um, Right. It tells me that the day before this uh, edition of Match of the Day was on, Postman Pat aired its first episode on BBC TV. David Steele told the Liberal Party conference, there's irony for you, uh, that the delegates of the, uh, the, the uh, Liberal Party conference to go back to your constituencies and prepare for government. Yep. Um, <laughs> just, just let that sink in. Um Two days after this episode of Match of the Day was broadcast, Steve Wright in the Afternoon was first broadcast on BBC Radio 1. Um, Six days after this episode, uh, Ford announced that their best-selling Cortina model would be discontinued next year to be replaced by the Ford Sierra. Ah, bless. Oh, man, the Ford Sierra. That was an ace car, that was. It, It was a nice car. I mean, you know... Putting that to one side, I mean, the Cortina was great. My dad had a, I think it was a uh, Cortina Mark II in sort of sky blue. Lovely car that was. But the, yeah, I love the Sierras, but I don't think people liked them at the time, I seem to no. recall. I think they were a bit sort of, uh, yeah, the, the fear of the new, let's say. <laughs> uh, there you go. Ten days after this episode went out, um, another children's animated series, Danger Mouse, would appear on the fir- TV for the first time on ITV. Good grief. And also, go <laughs> with there you go. See, that, that's why we're paying him the big money, everyone. He knows all these little <laughs> well, references. His bank account's this going into. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this later. Um, and also, 10 days after this episode, Liverpool FC's legendary manager, Bill Shankly, died at the age of 68. Um, also, at this point, we're less than two weeks away from Manchester United signing Brian Robson from West Bromwich Albion for £1.5 million. So uh, that gives you a little sort of timestamp there. Um on BBC One on this day, you'd have seen programmes like Battle of the Planets. Ooh. I'll just stop there so you can get a little reference in. No, have you got a little note? I'm sure there was something like that. That'll do. Yeah, there we go. Better than I can come up with a short notice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Good was Battle stuff. of the Planets. <laughs> I, think, I think that, yeah, well, that's a, a, a strange noise I would associate with that programme. Yeah, I think you've got the right one there. Uh, there was Ryder Cup Golf on. There was Grandstand, of course, because it would have been a Saturday. And Larry Grayson's Generation Game. Shut uh, that door. Shut that door. And See? if you will, look at the muck in here. Um, <laughs> in the charts, the UK number one single was Prince Charming by Adam and the Ants. The number one album in the UK was Dead Ringer by Meatloaf. Over in America, the number one single was Endless Love by D- Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. And the number one US album was Tattoo You by the Rolling Stones, of course. So there you go. That's kind of put you in the mood. That's That basically puts you slap bang just over the middle part of September 1981. 
and um, and so here we are. Good evening, and welcome to Match of the. I guess before we sort of get on to the specifics of this episode, let's just talk for a moment generally about Match of the Day, um, a program you used to watch. At an early age, I know you sort of said you really got into football when Mexico 86 came along and all that sort of thing, but would you have seen much of Match of the Day prior to that? I wouldn't, know because my parents weren't into sport whatsoever. Um, and funny if I was thinking about this the other day, I was thinking, how on earth? Because obviously when a World Cup's on, it kind of dominates the TV schedules. Now, prior to Mexico 86, obviously there was only... Um, in fact, prior to the World Cup, actually, when did Channel 4 launch? That was 82, wasn't it? So 82, November 82. Oh, yeah. there you go, November 82. So, yeah, for the 78 and 82 World Cups, uh, which I would have been alive for, um, that we only had three channels. And three channels? the football would have been on at least two of those, um, uh, with old BBC One and ITV. Um, and yet, I, I just had no idea they were taking place, you know, because my mum and dad just didn't watch football. And it's like, and, and to be honest, it was only. Mexico 86 I only saw because I happened to see the highlights on the sort of 10 o'clock news because I was a bit older so I could stay up a bit late. So <laughs> I'd probably missed Mexico 86 as well had it not been for like just seeing the highlights on the news and thinking, oh, this looks interesting. Um, <laughs> and so, no, Match of the Day would never have been on in the house. And yet the weird thing is I was aware of it. So like I would have been aware of the theme tune um, and what it was. Um, but I I don't know, maybe because it was after the news or something, so I'd have probably seen the start of it and then they'd have turned it over. So, But like I said, mm. I knew, in the same way that I knew the theme tune to like Grandstand and, you know, um, and like the big match and things like that, it's just, even though I never watched them much, I used to watch Grandstand a bit because it had wrestling on it, didn't it? You know, back it in did, the day, an old Big Daddy. Yeah. and um, Giant Haystacks. Yeah, Giant Haystacks. Uh, Kendo Nagasaki. <laughs> And, and others, <laughs> and and many others. Yes, many others. I was never much into wrestling, and then it was it was it was really odd when like I think it was like the late eighties or early nineties. Suddenly, it had a like a rebirth, not because of WWF or anything like that, but like suddenly, like people realised, oh, you know, this is this has become a cult thing, Big Daddy and all that kind of stuff. And then it was like it had a a rebirth briefly, and I just remember thinking, but it's. It's tawdry crap, surely. I'm sorry, everyone, but it's... it's Shirley know. Crabtree. That was Big Daddy. Shirley Crabtree. Indeed. But the weird thing about wrestling is that when you're a kid... I mean, when you're a kid, wrestling's ace. And obviously, so when, like, WWF and, you know, when they used to get pandas to wrestle each other, um, <laughs> when that came along in the 90s... Need a little joke there. Effective. Taxi. Penny finally dropped. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, so when kids watch that in the in the nineties, and and like I'm what I'm sort of sitting there thinking, it's so fake though, it's so fixed. And then when you actually mm-hmm. go back to the eighties and look at wrestling, you realise it was so fake and fixed. It was, like, but it was, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really, it was just as bad, you know. But you didn't realise it because you were a kid. Well, there you are, you see. Yeah, it just, I just remember it was sort of like it just seemed really tawdry, like they'd sort of say, and uh, this week it's coming from the municipal baths in Bradford, and uh, <laughs> yeah, there'd be all these kind of 70-year-old women with their handbags sort of yep. sitting in the front row hurling verbal abuse. Ten fags on the go, you know. <laughs> kill him, Harold! Pop. Kill him! <laughs> Gouges on that, Shirley! Pool of fag smoke <laughs> hovering above the whole place. It's a yellowed oh, just, wall, you know. Yeah. Just like, what's the appeal about this? Anyway. Ironically um, as well, given the amount of smoking that was going on, most of those places had, you know, usually had some kind of panelling on that was highly flammable. So <laughs> any, any discarded sort of like fag ash that hit the wall, you know, the place was going up. <laughs> oh dear. 
different times, as they say. Um, but yeah, for me, like, um, see, when I was at school, like Monday to Friday, my mum and dad were quite keen on me getting to bed at about like between, say, half nine and ten. Because any later than that, yeah, you won't get enough sleep, you won't get enough rest. You've got school tomorrow in the morning, so you need to go to bed fairly early. And then at the weekends, when I could, in theory, stay up a little bit later... There wasn't really anything much on TV I wanted to watch from about nine o'clock onwards. It was like, you know, I don't know, Starsky and Hutch or something. Well, okay, maybe, but I wasn't massively into Starsky and Hutch. And most times, like during the year, there'd have been some crap um, second-rate American drama thing that they'd put on or some like B-rate film. And it's like, okay, it's a Saturday night. I've got a chance to stay up a bit later and maybe hold out for whenever, 10, 15 or something when Match of the Day was on. But there's nothing. There's nothing to encouraging me to stay up a bit later. Um, I don't want to watch some, you know, rubbish cop show that's been imported from the US that nobody watched over there. Um, so I might as well go to bed. So I think I kind of missed out on Match of the Day when I was that age. And it wasn't till like I got into my late, you know, mid to late teens, and I started going to work. And it's like, oh, I'm practically an adult. That's I can. Oh, I'm staying up late, and I'm going to watch match of the day. And don't, whatever you say, mum and dad, that there's nothing you can do to stop me. I'm going to stay up. And it, then I would have started watching match of the day. But probably at this point, 1981, I was ten. But I was. I don't think I'd have seen it. I, I sort of saw clips. I used to prefer watching Football Focus and On the Ball because that was like Saturday lunchtime, and they would show lots of highlights from different games. I well, think. F- funny you should say that because I'm just trying to think. Obviously, I got into football in in '86 because of Mexico '86, um, and I don't think I watched Match of the Day for quite a few years afterwards either. I used to, what like you, watch Football Focus. Um, I remember very distinctly the, one of the first football focuses, or is that football foci mm, that I ever saw, <laughs> uh, which was um, when Oggy scored against Sheffield Wednesday in uh, I think December '86, something like that. Yes. When he scored from a, a goal kick, goal and kick scored yeah. straight away, brilliant. So that's yeah, that's yeah. so like you. I wouldn't have actually still watched Match of the Day. I'd have watched. Whatever it was when they used to actually show live matches, you know, on on the rare occasion they showed them. Yeah. Um, but then that was about it. Yeah, I, I don't, still don't think because mum and dad wouldn't have wanted to watch Match of the Day, so I wouldn't have seen it. And we only had well, we had two tellies in our house. We had a, a colour one downstairs and a black and white one upstairs. And I occasionally used to go and watch, um, like I think, like I remember watching England versus Scotland on the black and white telly upstairs once. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'd, but yeah, so I, I don't think I did watch Match of the Day for many years. Probably not until I was like you, sort of in my teens, and then stayed mm. up. I think it was probably at the point where mum and dad started going to bed before I did. Um, and then I obviously could just watch what I want. <laughs> there you go. Um, yes. And we didn't have satellites, so there wasn't any five minute free views by then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, and then satellite TV came along, and that was, um, that was a, a game changer for so many of us. Um, anyway. There we go. Um, so this episode of uh, Match of the Day begins and we get the, the title sequence. We get the theme tune by Barry Stoller, which was written in 1970. It was the second theme tune for Match of the Day um, after Drum Majorette, which is that one that used to go... Which was in... They used that in the 60s and then they replaced it with um, the classic Match of the Day theme tune, which of course sort of pretty much has stayed in situ ever since. Classic theme tune. That was the version that was never used. <laughs> the disco remix. 
<laughs> they must actually <laughs> the, they, the, the match of the day theme must have had a disco remix everything had a disco remix back in the late 70s early 80s well there were a few there was a like they, people always say oh did you know in that way that you just know you are going to know whatever fact is about to follow but the people say did you know there was a version of the match of the day theme that was never used or they they started using it and they dropped it well yeah there was one in i can't remember if it was late 70s or early 80s but that wasn't the only one there was another one uh, which was used in about 86, I think it was. And that was used, that was like a a very subdued, quiet sort of version. I think the opening bars were sort of like whistles, I think, if I remember rightly. So there was a few uh, that were tried and never used. Um, but uh, yes, the original Speaking was of disco the remixes, though, it's, it was always a joy in the 80s if you ever bought like a TV theme tunes cassette. Um <laughs> <laughs> and you'd get it, and it was only after you'd listened to the first few, you'd check the liner notes, it would say, not original artists, and you'd realise that you're listening to the Boston Pops plays Match of the Day. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, yeah, had ended up with a few of those. Usually found in Woolworths for about two ninety nine or something. Yeah, that's right. And you can, oh, luckily some of those have survived and end up on YouTube now. You can sort of hunt them down and um, find those. They're quite sort of charming in their way that they're not, they're not really quite as good as they ought to be. But, uh, <laughs> but I was always a bit of a strange child as, as, a, as, a, as a youngster because like other kids were getting into the music of the day and going out and buying singles of, you know, the aforementioned Adamant, for example, and, and, and his ilk. Um, I was always attracted by like theme tunes from TV programs. So when there was a World Cup and like ITV had, um, I think it was a piece of music called Matador um, for the World Cup '82. I was like, I said to my mum, like, yeah, well, I remember us going on holiday and we went past a shop that sold records. I said to my mum, oh, can we go in there and I want, can I buy a record? And she went, yeah, I suppose. So what, what one you after? And I said, um, it's the 1982 ITV World Cup theme. And she must have sort of thought, what a strange child I've given birth to. Like, he's just not into sort of chart music or anything like that, particularly just TV themes. I thought that was great when they... Because you used to get the thing on the end of a programme, they'd say, and uh, you'll be interested to hear that you can actually uh, buy the theme tune from this uh, programme. It's out available now on ITV Records. Uh, price two ninety nine or whatever. And, uh, and that, I thought that was wonderful. Big thrill, that was. Uh, well, you talked to the right person here because I had—I used to do the same. I had the theme tune to Squadron. Does anyone remember that? That was a mid-eighties <laughs> sort of uh, drama thing. Wow. I think it was. I never realised it was a drama at the time. I thought it was real. Um, but yeah, it was about <laughs> that was like featuring the Hercules, tra- um, not train for Christ's sake, plane. Um, I was going to say that that Matador theme was that the one done by Sash Matador. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. bit of an old callback there. <laughs> an old callback from if you've heard old podcasts of ours, you'll know that's uh, yes. Oh, I'm not going to explain it now. It's going to take too long. Um, anyway, um, so that's the theme tune, and then of course you had the title sequence, which in this case um, it's uh, basically a series of live action shots of goals, mostly I think from the end of the previous season, because we we're only at this point. I think we we're only like a few weeks into the new season, um, intercut with pre-recorded. Uh, sequences of things like a referee waving a flag um, and a sort of animated sequence that's meant to look like an electronic scoreboard because nothing reeks of the early 80s like electronic scoreboards you can ask Subutio collectors and they'll tell you the same thing um, but of course it wasn't a real electronic scoreboard it was kind of made it was like an animation thing made to look like it and it would come up with like match of the day and introduced by Jimmy Hill um, and uh, yeah and there was also like a little there was a bit there, if you keep your eyes peeled, you see this bit of like a goalkeeper and a player going up to head a ball from a corner. And uh, the player, 
going up to head it is wearing a QPR away shirt. Did you spot that in the? Uh, in the I, I did. Well, I, I made the notes about the fact that they did the sort of graphics, which then morphed into what seemed to be specially shot footage because it was somewhat <laughs> yes. different. Like it was, it was one of those things, like when you see it in a film, and it's shot from an angle where you can't see any crowd or stands or anything. You know, so, so you <laughs> yeah. know it was shot in a field somewhere. Um, I couldn't work out. Is I couldn't work. I thought it might have been an Aberdeen shirt at first, and then I thought, well, that would be even more strange if it was, given this was English match of the day. But yes, yeah, it was a QPR away shirt, wasn't it? Because it was a red one. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, it was. A, it was a football ground. But I don't know which football ground. I'm sure somebody out there probably knows QPR. Possibly. Conf- it might have been QPR. Might have been or, or being you know BBC and everything. It was probably yeah. I suppose QPR would have been the nearest, wouldn't it? I suppose to yeah. like Shepherd's Bush. I think so. Yeah. Well, there you are. And to be um, fair, you wouldn't have to angle it up much to not see the stands because they're tiny at QPR. Yeah. <laughs> and but the bit, the favourite bit that I like was I think the bit you just referred to, where you see like the shirts from one to twelve appearing on this supposed electronic scoreboard, uh, initially done in a kind of dot matrix fashion, and then they morph into the Aston Villa shirts because Aston Villa are the reigning uh, league champions at the time, and um, so you see the backs of all these shirts. So the answers a question I had was why it morphed into Villa. Because obviously, again, you know, early eighties football. I don't know who won the league, because um, I was thinking I recognised it as Villa. But then I thought, well, oh, is it because they're featured on today? But then of course they were wearing their away kits anyway. So I thought, well, why wouldn't it? But yeah, so that's why. There you go. And it did strike me as odd that it goes up to twelve. Yeah. I mean, I'm, were they only allowed one substitute at that point? I, I can't remember to be honest. Well, pretty much, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's probably why. Um, but. Um... But the, the the thing was, and here I'm going to probably contradict myself, and that is, I remember from the previous seat, like it probably was the previous season to this, those shirts were red because they were the Liverpool shirts because it was Liverpool that were the champions. And then when this 81-2 season came around, they changed that bit of the title sequence to show the Aston Villa shirts, which I thought was quite neat. But the thing was, there's me saying, oh, I never really used to watch Match of the Day at the time, but I remember seeing the red shirts from the previous season for Liverpool. So... Uh, but a nice t- sort of touch just to kind of keep things updated and, and topical and such like. So, yes, all very good. Another strange thing with the 1 to 12 was the way that they, they listed them. It went 12 mm. down to 1. 12. So starting top <laughs> yeah. left, it was 12. And then, like, the goalkeeper was in the bottom right. And you think, well... Yeah. And even when they list the teams on later, you know, it's like they still list it in the normal way. So it's just such an odd way to do it. I suppose it was it supposed was. to be looking like it was going upfield, but... They didn't put in a formation, which obviously you can't yeah. do if you've got number twelve on the pitch as well. So, <laughs> strange choice. I'm surprised. I just, I remember just thinking when I watched it, why didn't they just do one to eleven and and do it in a <laughs> formation or something? And but twelve, such a weird thing to just add the twelfth man in, unless it was a referee. Wait. Uh, <laughs> I suspect they were kind of preempting kind of letters of complaint saying, oh, well, you know, a team also includes a substitute. I think you'll find. So they probably thought, well, yeah. And make it up to, but to answer your question about like why um, was number twelve included? I suspect it was like the illustrator that designed that particular frame. He, he probably tried to lay out the shirts with eleven, and it probably wasn't spacing out correctly on the page. So he probably thought, "I need another shirt. I'll put a number twelve there, and then that means we can have you know four on the top row and five on the middle, and well, you know, whatever it was." I think it was but just anyway, three that's just fours, me, just what was that, sorry? I think it was just three fours. That three, old, four, yeah, that old four, 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 
Oh yeah, there we Formation. go. I was trying to look. I've, believe it or not, on my notes, I've printed out a picture. And I'm I've thrown the bit of paper on the floor, and I'm, now I'm t- arching my. Ne- yeah, you were quite right. It was three fours. Of course, it was. That's see. That's why they had twelve. That would yeah. just made it equal. See, I think we've answered our own question there. Crazy. But um, but a nice job on the old graphics there. I thought. Yeah, it was quite. Um, it was a very early eighties. Um, the only thing missing was probably neon. But that probably came in a couple of years later, <laughs> I thought, because that was a very early yeah, lasers. motif, is neon. Yeah, yeah. And this is, a, I think, the previous title sequence before this was the one that they used where they had loads of people in a grandstand uh, holding up cards, like the old, um, like the Olympic opening ceremony kind of <coughs> thing. And it, they all would hold up cards. It would say, match of the day. And then they'd sort of sit down and then they'd stand up again, hold up different cards, and there'd be a picture of Jimmy Hill. But... I'm sure there'll be a, a, another podcast where we get to talk about that and <laughs> stuff, but that was the one before, I think. Yes. Anyway, so that was that. So that was the title sequence, and then it leads us into the program itself. It's introduced by Jimmy Hill, and gore blimey if it isn't the man himself. Um, Jimmy Hill, the third regular presenter of Match of the Day between 1973 and 1988. Um, he's 53 at the time of this episode being broadcast. Um, he's uh, he's wearing a sort of pale, fawny grey kind of coloured jacket, an off-white coloured shirt, and um, what I can only describe as a sort of champagne gold and brown diagonal striped tie. Um, all very smart. Uh, he's, uh, he's his hair's nicely combed, trimmed the moustache, and he's got. And I had to. I've got to pat myself on the back for this because I, I had to work out and do research to find out exactly what sort of beard that is that he had, because, of course, he was famous for his protruding chin. Um, it's uh, known as an Egyptian goatee beard. <laughs> Ten points for me for working that one out. Well, I've never um, heard of such a thing, but now you know. That's the sp- spawn the famous um, song, Shave Like an Egyptian. <laughs> Which by, the, by the Spangles. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to cram in as many nostalgia references as possible at this point. The man's delirious. Um, Jimmy Hill's sitting in a, a beige-coloured studio with a hand-painted match of the day board on the wall behind him in the same dot matrix font as was seen in the opening titles. Good evening and welcome to Match of the Day when, as last week, we're showing one first and one second division game. Jimmy bids us good evening because Match of the Day was back on Saturday nights at this point after it was famously switched to Sunday afternoons the previous season in 1980-81. And he tells us that we're about to see one match from the first division, Liverpool versus Aston Villa, and one from the second, Norwich City versus Newcastle United. And uh, it goes on to tell us that the two goalkeepers in the Liverpool v Villa game played particularly well, and we get a brief clip to back up that claim. After that, Jimmy Hill's co-presenter, former Arsenal goalkeeper Bob Wilson, gives us the news headlines in which he speculates on the mysterious absence of Nottingham Forest's John Robertson from their match against Stoke, can I jump in at this point, Chris? You I, can, go on. I, I love the way this was done. Um, so <laughs> they just cut to Bob Wilson, who says, and today's news is, why did John Robertson miss the game at Stoke? Uh, and also, <laughs> and then they showed a picture of Gary Bursell and said, uh, well, and there's no surprise why he's celebrating tonight. And then they just went back to Jimmy Hill. That was it. There's, there's no elaboration. <laughs> but we're, but you're we're assuming, not going to tell you. You're assuming they're going to cover it later, but they might not. They might just they might just leave it at that, you know. Everybody knows why Gary Birtles is celebrating, don't we? And you sit there thinking, no. <laughs> and by the way, if you're watching this 40 years hence, uh, you you might need to do some Googling because um, you're not going to find out for about another 40 minutes or so. Uh, 
After that, it's back to Jimmy Hill, who leads us into the highlights of our first game, where Anfield welcomed a crowd of only 37,474, somewhat uh, down by Liverpool standards, he says. Uh, what Jim fails to tell us is that there's currently around 3 million people unemployed in the UK, many of which lived in and around the Liverpool area. Um, Rich, that was a bit off, wasn't it? Uh, Jim commenting on Liverpool's home attendance. <laughs> I mean, they weren't the league champions at this point, were they? So, is Well, I, I wrote down, I wrote down a crowd of 37,474. Pathetic. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was the tone it was given. It was literally like, oh, yeah. it's a bit down on usual. I'm thinking, you're right, you're right, Jimmy. Steady on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's um, someone's been getting a little bit high and mighty in recent weeks. Yeah. <laughs> So there we go, and we're going to Liverpool versus Aston Villa, the first match. Um, so let's just set the scene here a bit, just to give you a bit of context on this game. So three days before this match, Villa had beaten the Icelandic side Valur of Reykjavik 5-0 in their European Cup first round first leg tie, and they went on to win that one 7-0 on aggregate. Uh, Liverpool, meanwhile, had beaten Olin po- Palasura of Finland 1-0 uh, in that same midweek uh, fixture and it was the second leg in the second leg rather they went on to win mm-hmm. 7-0 at home um, while Aston Villa of course would go on to win the European Cup eight months later Liverpool entering as the reigning champions would be knocked out by CSKA Sofia at the quarterfinal stage uh, so with the 81-82 season only three weeks old Liverpool started the day of this broadcast down in 17th place in the table having won only one of their first four games Aston Villa weren't doing much better they were in 14th place on four points as well uh, this was the first season of uh, three points for a win in England and Wales do you remember that sort of kicking in at all Rich that introduction of three points for a win no uh, because again I wasn't into football but uh, what I do remember is three points for a win kicking in in USA 94 or, if, or in fact would it have been UA, UA for 92 uh, that actually yes. that kicked in because up until then even the 1990 World Cup was still only two points for a win that's right um, so we were quite sort of in, in the UK we were quite ahead of um, the rest of the world and trialling it and uh, and all of that so uh, yeah it's quite a big deal because it's sort of designed I think to encourage more attacking football and all that you know go for the three points instead of settling for a draw and all that malarkey so there we go now I should point out this uh, juncture that um, if you're watching the video along with us or you know at some point there are a few sort of dropouts and technical glitches in this video um, essentially we chose this uh, episode of match of the day kind of at random um, before we actually watched it and we committed to focusing on this, it wasn't until we watched it that we found out that there's a section of about 30 seconds-ish fairly early on uh, where basically whoever recorded this off of satellite TV had lost the signal to the satellite and that means that you don't get to see that the, the football in that short period. So apologies, uh, you know, circumstances beyond Nothing our control. Nothing happened, though. Nothing happened. Nothing much happened. Boring 30 seconds. <laughs> And there's also a few sort of very brief sort of free freeze frames that happen as well during the latter part of the uh, or throughout this video. So again, apologies for that, but hopefully it doesn't uh, take anything too much away from your viewing pleasure on that. Anyway, um, just before we sort of talk about the match and stuff like that, first of all, a few things that we've sort of spotted observations and stuff. First of all, the kits. Rich now, Villa were in their fancy Lecoq Sportif white away kit very nice while Liverpool were wearing their old Umbro what I always call their Hitachi kit 
this is sort of like a crossover period, isn't it, really, where the, the old kits were starting to disappear and the new shiny shirts were coming in and, and all that malarkey. Well, the funny thing is I'd made that exact note because I'm saying, like, Aston Villa looked really modern in their away shirt and their nice silky hmm. kit and, and Liverpool looked really outdated by this point. I mean, this is also pre-sort of Umbro pinstripe, so this mm. is really kind of, you know, going back. And when it, it, the material, you can tell, looks scratchy rather than silky. Um mm. Yeah, and also I noticed the numbers as well. The Lecoq Sportif yes. numbers are very modern in that sort of, um, the sort of like the 3D shadow, the block sort of thing mm. that went on to become quite a sort of common theme. And Liverpool had their, I don't know if it was like an Umbro number set, because I noticed it was the same for um, Newcastle. Newcastle. In yeah. their match. Um, they were supplied by Umbro at the time. Um, but, they, but they had that same sort of number set for years, even when they switched to Adidas. Because um, yeah. I'm trying to think, in the late 80s, they still had that same kind of number set, which was this kind of very sort of hand-cut sort of look, you know, mm-hmm. kind of curved numbers that look... Almost like they've just literally been hand cut out of material because they just, I don't know, they didn't seem to have a sort of standard look, even though they probably were. It just, they looked really handmade. Um, and yeah, yeah, like I say, I think they had that sort of same font on the back of Liverpool shirts right up until probably the early 90s, I think, until the yeah. um, Adidas equipment sort of, the modern sort of kits came along. Yeah, that, that's, see, I, I think it's a sort of classic. Um, as you say, number set that was used there. Um, like so many teams had that for years and years and years. And I just think there must be a font somewhere. Somebody must have actually done a font. I mean, I don't know how you would do the letters for it, but the numbers. But as you say, it's almost like someone has designed, like has, has actually drawn out some numbers with a pen on some paper and then handed that bit of paper to a, a, a tailor or someone and sort of said, cut some numbers out that look like that. Well, yeah, because the way that the, the number five, it's sort of like... It's difficult to sort of say, really, but there's the, the 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 lines, the straight lines, the curves on like number three and stuff like that. It, it's very sort of distinctive, like it's been handwritten first and then transferred to a, like fabric. Yeah, the one I noticed it the most on is number nine because the nine, hmm. the loop of the nine at the <laughs> yeah. top is very squashed, and it's got yes. quite a long tail on it. So Curl, normally, yeah. you'd like a nine, the, the the top part would be about. You know, half of the the height, and then the bit, the tail at the bottom. In, in Spain, where I suppose on like on a digital clock, it would be. But mm. on this, the the loop of the nine at the top is like almost a third of the the height, and then the tail is like two thirds. So it just looks really, it just looks really handmade. And yet, yeah. when you actually look at them down the years, they are very consistent. So obviously, it was a proper you know number set, but it just had that lovely handmade sort of very sort of eighties look about it. Yeah. Absolutely, and the and as you said, that sort of three D block uh, effect on the Lecoq Sportif kit would have been seen in the following World Cup about a year later, or just under a year later, on the shirts of teams like Italy and Argentina who wore Lecoq Sportif, and um, and it, that would have just given me a perverse thrill at that age, at ten years old, seeing like a three D font on the back of the shirt. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I loved all that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, that that font still exists to this day in some form or another on someone's shirts, particularly when there's a World Cup. But it's, it just never seems to go out of fashion. But obviously not quite as popular, perhaps, as it used to be. <clears throat> but a very versatile uh, font, nonetheless. All very nice. Um, and, of course, um, yeah, one of the early sightings of uh, pinstripes on the Aston Villa shirt, and which we would see on the Norwich shirt, shirt in the second match as well. So, uh, yes, there's that. Two, uh, the ball 
It was an Adidas, I think, Tango River Plate, I'm going to guess, because it's that would have come in in the 1978 World Cup. Not commonly seen in the UK at this point, but in the I think in this particular season, you did start seeing it sort of crop up from time and time again. So again, it's like you're seeing in Liverpool a team wearing an old kit, but playing with a brand new modern ball. It was like a slightly jarring kind of juxtaposition of, of things there. Nice ball, that. Very nice. That's one thing actually. I, I did wonder is um, so. I mean, like obviously in the in the by the time we're going to football, um, we the the league generally used the mitre delta of football, but mm-hmm. it, I, I don't know. There didn't seem to be an exclusive agreement because I remember the tango being used quite a few times in the league. So mm-hmm. I, I do find that odd. Whereas obviously now you have like an official ball for the Premier League and for the EFL and all that lot, but. It just, yeah, and I'll say the mitre delta seemed to be like almost the de facto ball, but the tango mm. definitely cropped up a lot. So I don't, mm. I don't know if there was an official ball or, or if you know, just actually just kept sneaking it out. You know, <laughs> well, sort of yes and no. I mean, I don't think there was any kind of cross league agreement like you will use this ball. So it was down to the individual ground wherever a game was going on, and they would just say, "Oh, we'll use that one," but. Um, and I know this to be true because I wrote an article about it for the Football Attic blog way back in the ancient mists of time, um, that there was this ball, and it cropped up in the second match, and we'll come on to it, which was a white ball with like a red stripe around the middle of it, um, the red patches. And um, that one was, how can I put this? I think three different manufacturers made their version of it like white ball, red stripe around the middle. One of them was called the Football League Ball. And yet it wasn't used across the whole league. Like I say, it was just down to whichever ground a game was going on and the people at the ground, yeah, will use that. So in this case, they just picked a tango ball. But in the second game, we would see that Football League Ball. And I think Sondico made one of those three. Um, I can't even remember the detail. I wrote about it years ago. It's uh, it's probably on the blog somewhere. But um, anyway... Come back to that, but nice to see the old uh, tango ball there by Adidas. Um, the referee was uh, George Tyson of Sunderland. He was a FIFA referee from 1978 to 1990. Um, commentator John Motson. Happy to hear John Motson's dulcet tones. Was he one of your favourite commentators at the time? Yeah, I was like John. Um, it's, it's a bit like Jimmy Hill. Um, it's a bit of a love-hate thing with him. A lot of people didn't like Motson, and a lot of people couldn't stand Jimmy Hill. I like the pair of them, personally. I always yeah. like them. So, yeah, it's just... Um, it's like, I think we might have described it once as sort of slipping into an old pair of shoes or something. It's like, you know, that comforting voice of, of you know, the familiarity and recognition of John Motson's voice when watching football. Absolutely. And like in the case of Jimmy Hill, was very sort of avuncular, um, just sort of like... Quite, I mean, as a 10-year-old, you sort of go, oh, seems like a nice bloke and he seems to know about football. Can't, yeah, no complaints. Carry on talking about whatever you're talking about. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and um, then you've got uh, the lineups. of course. We see the lineups for the two teams. And this, of course, is done in the classic match of the day style of the day. So a diagonal team listing and a, a sort of badge on the top right-hand corner of the screen to go with it. And... Um, just it gladdens my heart to see because it was very basic, you know, listing all the players in a diagonal formation like that. But it's especially nowadays when you get the animated sort of sight of players folding their arms and you know, seeing see them from their sort of 
torsos upwards. But I just like seeing those diagonal listings. I don't think they were great. It's well, it's a classic look, isn't it? You know, can't can't go wrong with that. I do like the fact that, um, and I, I, this always intrigued me as well because the badge at the time for Liverpool that it was a weird situation where you had a club badge which wasn't the same as the one on the shirts. Because Liverpool's club badge, as it had been for a long time, was the one they eventually adopted in the late eighties, which was the uh, the Liver Bird inner shield with Liverpool written underneath it. Um, mm. But that had been their sort of official club badge for years, but it wasn't on the shirts. And I always found that quite interesting because that would be one of the ones you got in your in your Panini sticker books as well. You'd get the club badge, not necessarily the crest that was on the shirt at the time. Yeah. Quite so, yeah. If you look back in, in through the older episodes of Match of the Day, going back into the 70s, you see some really odd badges that they used on those captions. Like badges, you think, where did you get that from? Like as if they went, um, anybody got the uh, Stockport County badge? Uh, no, I haven't got it. What? Oh, uh, do you know what it's like? What does it look like? It's got a kind of a like a ball. and a, just, Well, look, just, just draw it, will you? Can you just draw it and we'll use that on the... Ca- it's almost like they've done that, like a last-minute sort of sketch job. And you see one or two of those are quite funny. Well, it's like, as like I said, it's in, you get that a lot in Panini because obviously yes. the Panini badges tend to be the sort of federation badges. So like in when you get the World Cup ones, like the Germany one was never the sort of round crest that Germany <laughs> has on its shirts. It was always the kind of weird... DFB lettering in that kind of weird sort of 70s jagged font you know kind of lots lots yeah. of triangles um, I think nowadays it is I think in Panini albums it is the sort of crest but I don't know if that's because the DFB mm. have actually changed their their badge to reflect that anyway uh, but yeah right. I always used to find that really interesting it was, and it used to it was one, of the, what's one of the things that I love about this sort of older football things and I think we've talked about this before is where things were non-standard you know where Literally, it happened to be depended on who happened to be in the reprographics that day as to which badge you got, you know, and just the complete sort of it's a bit sort of naive in effect, and and a sort of a lack of corporateness about it all that you know there was this kind of mm. bodged together sort of sort of feel about football in the eighties and then the seventies, and and I love that it's like it wasn't yeah. sort of all slick and overproduced. It was literally like kind of. But then I suppose that's how football was. You know, if you think about it, nowadays you'd have a media team for each, you know, uh, football team you've got out there. Whereas in the old mm. days it would have been, you know, <laughs> the club secretary uh, called Doris or something who would have been typing <laughs> up on a, on a you know, a manual typewriter. And I just, like I just love that. kind. Of, yeah, and I just love that kind of, that sort of cottage industry aspect to it. You know, but even, mm. even though football in the 80s was big, you know, it was still, in terms of an actual global product it was it was tiny you know and, and it was still yeah. very much along the lines of uh you know your local i think we've said this before like your local uh, businessman made good would be your chairman you know pumping like <laughs> a couple hundred grand into the club a year you know absolutely um so looking at the lineups on this um we've got uh ronnie whelan on the bench for liverpool uh, he was brought in as a younger replacement for ray kennedy who was sort of seen as one of the older throwbacks to the uh, the great sides of the 1970s uh, no Ian Rush playing just yet. Uh, he made his debut the previous season, but he wasn't getting much of a look in at this point. But uh, I think at this point, Rich, it was like uh, people were looking at Liverpool and saying, OK, yes, you've been successful, but some of your players are getting a bit old now. And so the first one of the first ones out the door was Ray Clements. He went to Tottenham. 
Um, and as I say, Ray Kennedy, he's getting a bit old, so we'd better bring in Ronnie Whelan and we'll sort of drip feed him in. And um, Ian Rush is a sort of young kid, effectively, from Chester City, and we'll we'll give him one or two little sort of starts and hope hopefully he turns out all right. So this was sort of Liverpool planning for the future a bit, but not many signs of the new players sort of coming in. They would come in eventually, some of them in this season. Um, but uh, yeah. No, I think no they Ronnie Whelan. Like they say, they mentioned the Grobbler. I mean, he was twenty-three at the time. <laughs> it's like, right. I just, I just wrote "bless him" on the notes. You know, twenty-three-year-old <laughs> Grobbler. That's just bizarre. Young master Grobbler. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, for Villa, um, Terry Donovan was a replacement at number eight for the injured Gary Shaw. I saw that name. I thought I've never heard of him because I don't. I'm not sure I was collecting Panini stickers in 1981. I might have been. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, I don't remember any Terry Donovan. But anyway, apparently um, he made his name at Grimsby Town and he was largely kept out of the Villa side by Gary Shaw, who's like the big new star of the team at, the, at that point. Um, and he, he was, however, uh, Terry Donovan, one of only 14 players used by Villa on their way to winning the league title in 1981. So that's, he's got that notoriety. But anyway, he was involved too. How do you replace an institution? That's been the question facing 23-year-old Bruce Grobbler since he took over in the Liverpool goal from Ray Clements. But he's possibly- and um, and so we, you know, basically we, we start seeing the match. And we're not going to talk about like, you know, all the kind of boring technical stuff of football, like formations and stuff like that. That's not what we're here for. We're here to sort of point out sort of the, the, the things, the peripheral things that we sort of saw. Like, for instance, Rich, the, uh, like the pitch side advertising hall is always an absolute joy when you're seeing an old <laughs> match like this. Um, any particular names on the on the advertising balls that, that leapt out at you? There, there was actually there was I got a great one from the second match. Um, from this one, one of the ones that I really did like was it says your local off license is, <laughs> and then I missed the actual first part because I I, did, I didn't go back and rewind it. Someone a nephew. You've probably written that one down though. I yes. guess. Yeah, Ash and Nephew. There we go. <laughs> I love that. But one thing I did <laughs> notice actually that really surprised me was how many of the the advertising hoardings there are still around as companies now because a lot of the time when you look at these things you know you obviously you have a lot of local businesses stuff but obviously with it being liverpool they had a lot of more international brands but it's really surprising how many um are still going yeah i think Mm. it was something like about 80 percent of the advertising hoardings are companies that still exist which i was to be honest really surprised with yeah absolutely yeah i mean um Familiar names, really, from the past. Um, Strongbow Cider, uh, Duckham's Oil, um, Hitachi, of course. This being Anfield and Liverpool, Liverpool was, were uh, sponsored by uh, sponsored by Hitachi, but weren't able to wear the names on the shirts at this point, not on TV anyway. And yet, and yet, I counted five different advertising boards around the pitch that said Hitachi, which was like pretty mm-hmm. blatant in-your-face advertising. That uh, <laughs> really, but. Uh, but this was the era of um, electronics companies. I mean, nowadays it's obviously all betting. Uh, that's I'm just going to put my grumpy old man hat on there. Um, but back then, in the early days of shirt advertising and advertising boards and things, um, companies like Hitachi and and you know companies that made fridge freezers and stereos and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was the kind of the the, the de rigueur for that era, really. And yeah, your local off-license is Ash and Nephew. And I was like, <laughs> this is on prominent, like in two places yeah. on the far side of the pitch. And I was like... And near the middle of the pitch as well. So like, they would have paid a lot for that advert. <laughs> yeah. Because it was almost... Like, like, in, in fact, it was on the halfway line pretty much. Yeah. 
And I was thinking like, so a local off-license has got a prime advertising spot. <laughs> like, you know, if you if you look up, you know, how things have changed in a book of quotations, they'll just show you a picture of that. Um, and I looked it up. I, I tried to find out some information about Ash and Nephew. And all I could find is that I think back in like the 50s and 60s, they, I think they were a brewery who used to bottle Guinness uh, for that part of the UK. And so they were, I think, were a big deal. And no doubt... If anyone's listening in from from the Liverpool area, you will probably know about Ash and Nephew. Do get in touch with us and tell us uh, tell us about Ash and Nephew. Oh, that's um, me, Relies. I just love I was the just idea. Gonna say, were you- yeah, I I just love the idea though of someone from Ash and Nephew going down to the ground and looking at the la- the advertising horns going, "Who's this taxi fella? Get rid of that lady. Stick our board in the middle, son." <laughs> or whatever uh, yeah, the action would have been at the time. Relatives are- <laughs> <laughs> Do the old relatives? Are- so you might know about this stuff. Yes, yeah. and they all drink heavily, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, amongst the things that I spotted when we were watching this, um, there was, I mean, whenever there's a replay, you get the classic circular R symbol, BBC TV underneath it, which I still say they should have that, like some kind of R. They used to have, sometimes they'd have like a flashing R in the corner with a World Cup. Can't beat that in my bu- well, in my book. I made the note of that as well because what I noticed about it was it was a really fancy graphic. It was like yeah. so a lot of the sort of um, the sort of World Cups in the seventies when they started having replays had that sort of flashing R, which would of course been you know very computer blocky, you know, pixelated. <laughs> but this was like a proper designed graphic, a really fancy R mm. with the BBC lettering underneath it, and then a kind of almost like an elongated circle. I think you call them ovals um, over the top. So, but the weird thing was it only flashed up for half a second and then yeah. disappeared. So That's right. you could have missed it completely. Um, <laughs> it's just because like, the public would have thought, wait a minute, time has actually slowed down to half speed. What's going on? I've just seen yeah. this. What's happening? <laughs> what, what could be going on? And write a letter to my MP about this. Um, I just, I, I think they should bring back an R. Some some kind of R symbol or logo in the corner for replays. And then they're not you imagine if they did it. that? It's just be like, <laughs> people like, why are you putting this on? We know it's a replay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dear. Um, another glorious moment. I don't know if you spotted it. There was a um, a moment where I think it's in about about twelve minutes thirty three on the video. Um, uh, there's a, a Terry McDermott corner, and in the background you see this Liverpool fan just stand up. He's wearing like a grey brownie, sludgy coloured sort of jumper and trousers, and he stands up and turns to the away end and just flicks a V side at them, <laughs> just in the, in the fashion that was common of the day. But that's well, that's another thing with the crowd, of course, is that you know virtually nobody's wearing replica kits because they weren't massively no. a thing at the time, and it's like it's such a strange thing to think back to. You know, I mean, replica kits would have been a thing by this point, but not so massive that everybody had to have one. And, like, obviously mm. look at a crowd nowadays and it's like a sea of whatever colour that team happens to wear. Whereas back in the mm. 70s and the early 80s, it was a sea of brown. Because coats, <laughs> you know, that's what... Yeah, and flat parkers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the thing was, I, I actually at some point in this game saw, and it, I think that was during a corner, when a corner was being taken, I saw a kid wearing a Liverpool replica shirt and he stood out like a sore thumb because he was literally <laughs> the only person in amongst about 5,000 in that corner of the pitch who had it on. I could just see the like the end of the word Hitachi coming off the end of his shirt. So um, I think he was wearing it over the top of like another shirt. But um, yeah, I mean, that just goes to show how much that sort of thing had kind of infiltrated 
everyday life, which wasn't a common thing, of course, back then. Um, other things, um, of course, we see Kenny Dalgleish, who had been sort of brought in as a, a replacement for for Kevin Keegan, uh, I think a sort of few seasons beforehand. Um, he had a bit of a tawdry match. He was he lashed out at Alan Evans there, didn't he, at one point? Yeah, I, I made the note. Um, what was it? Um, Dalgleish in light shove scandal. <laughs> <laughs> Because they made a big issue of the fact that Douglas doesn't normally react, and it's like, and then they showed the replay, and it's like, at first glance, it appeared like quite a sort of violent reaction. He's he's clearly annoyed, but when they showed the replay, he literally just sort of gives the guy a light shove, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he's not, it's not huge, is it? I mean, I, I also made the point that um, someone got hit in the face, um, but they didn't mm. fall over or die, <laughs> yes. um, but they actually took a proper whack to the face. But they stayed on their feet and just sort of put their face in their hands. Still a little bit dramatic, to be fair, um, and obviously trying to get something from the ref. But yeah, they didn't sort of immediately drop down like they'd been hit by a sniper or something. So it was yeah. it's just fun to see that. Yeah, like that. It was quite sort of shocking when you see something like some kind of physical coming together. And as you say, you like by today's standards, you expect them to suddenly drop to the like as if they're being hit by a bullet, like and roll around on the floor. And like the, I think the one you were talking about, it was Ray Kennedy who yes. got sent off. Yes, and it was an incident with Alan Evans again of Aston mm. Villa, and it all happened very quickly. And the replay only sort of showed like half of it. It was like the aftermath of it. But I think what happened was Alan Evans went in for a challenge on Ray Kennedy, and. I think what happened was he he turned around and sort of like pushed him, but I think he tried to headbutt Alan Evans. He, it's really quick. You've got to really concentrate and, and strain your eyes a bit. And that's why Alan Evans then puts his hands over his face as if he's, he's been like headbutted. But he doesn't fall backward like a felled timber. He just sort of like sort of rubs his head and goes, "Oh, that hurt a bit," and then just carries on, just jogs off. And it was and and similarly when um, he, Alan Evans had a bit of a lunge in, I wouldn't call it exactly a two-footed tackle, but he sort of went in for a bit of a strong sort of challenge on Kenny Dalgleish. And Dalgleish just instinctively just swiped his arm around as if to say, like, bugger off. But it was like, oh, you know, Alan Evans is going to get booked. And I thought, oh, for for, for what? A bit of a, because like, you know, and Kenny Dalgleish, I don't think got booked. He would have no. got probably sent off as flinging his arm around probably these days. So Yeah. It's, it was all a bit Footballers these days, eh? <laughs> oh, I tell you. Um, but much was made of um, Jimmy Rimmer and Bruce Grobler, the two goalkeepers, because, spoiler alert, this was a nil-nil draw, which kind of... It was an exciting nil-nil draw, though. Apparently. So they kept telling us. Well, yeah, because here's the thing, of course, like, they in this episode, you get two games, and obviously what the BBC did, probably like, the, like ITV as well at the time is they just sort of went, right, okay, like a week beforehand, let's look at the fixtures. We're going to have to go to two. We've only got enough cameras and people mm-hmm. to go to two matches. Let's pick the two that we think will be all right. And, of course, they didn't know if it was going to be a good match or not, so they were sort of putting all their eggs in, like, a couple of baskets, let's say. And um, it was like, mm, well, if it was a bit of a crap game, they just had to sort of, like, try and make a positive portray it in as positive a way as they could to, for the listeners and the, and the viewers indeed and to be fair it wasn't too bad it was uh, I mean the second game was actually I found more boring and that actually it wasn't nil-nil it was quite funny um, just watching the oh, I'm trying to think near the end um, it might have been I think it was Kennedy that had a shot or was he off the pitch by this point I can't remember someone had a shot very late on 
and it looked like it was going in, but it hit the post right across yeah. the goal. It was just like, oh, come on. And um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was entertaining, actually. It was for a nil-nil. It, it was, there was a lot of shots going on. And I think they made the point as well. And, and in tying in with the three points for a win, um, that, that within in the last sort of 15 minutes, both teams seem to be actually going for a win and seem to be trying mm. to score rather than just sitting back and taking the point. So um, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was it was it was good to watch. It was, it was it's quite funny though because one of the first notes that I made in the first ten minutes of was this is like ping pong football. It's like no everyone seems mm. clueless as to how to trap the ball or every single <laughs> pass was going alright. It was like and you're thinking this is I mean Liverpool you know and Liverpool and Aston Villa at the time. And yet, they just kept giving the ball away. Uh, but then, to be yeah. fair, they settled down soon after that and it actually turned into a pretty good match. Indeed, indeed so. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, they sort of, um, on the on match of the day, they sort of uh, portrayed this as being a, a show for the two goalkeepers, uh, Jimmy Rimmer of Aston Villa and Bruce Grobelar. Um, Jimmy Rimmer, um, I'm just looking on my ZX81 here, the details it's bringing up for me here. John James Rimmer, uh, he was born in Southport, by the way, I just I couldn't I got to mention this because it just made me laugh. If you type in to Google Southport UK, underneath the box comes up. People also ask, and then there's questions underneath. And the first one says, "Is Southport rough?" And <laughs> uh, <no, laughs> like, no, not um, does anybody famous come from Southport? <laughs> is Southport rough? And then the answer is something like, um, "Southport was a formerly a Victorian seaside village." So it doesn't address the. Like, what do you mean rough? Um, anyway, do you, you know anything of Southport? <laughs> I used to go there um, when, obviously, Ooh. like I say, I've got relatives in Liverpool, so um, we used to go. Um, Basically, on a bank holiday Monday, we used to go up at Easter, and often on a bank holiday Monday, or the Sunday, I think, we'd go to Southport. Um, and my overriding memory of Southport is this, it's a nice enough place, there's not much going on, but then I think that's because we went on a bank holiday Monday, so everything's shut, you know. Um, but the sea is about 10 miles out. It's really shallow, and it's quite well known in, in Southport. Basically, the, when the sea is out, it's about 10 miles out. Uh, mm-hmm. It does come in eventually, but it's so far out. So a lot of the beach is just like mud for miles um, and you can't get to the sea. Um, <clears throat> last time I actually went to Southport, um, I was I had a holiday up in Liverpool um, for a couple of days. And me and the kids went to Southport. We went to the Southport Leisure Centre and I nearly lost my glasses because <laughs> I used to wear... <laughs> <laughs> I, I now have like prescription um, goggles because I, I can't see without mm-hmm. my glasses. But I used to just wear my glasses in the pool. And then just before we were about to leave, I had really lightweight glasses as well. They had this big bucket thing that fills up and then eventually you know, tips, tips over. over. And we said, right, just before we go, we'll do that once more. <laughs> so we did that and the water poured down. And then after it had gone, I thought, I can't see. And realized it had actually swept my glasses off my face. And then they it, they had like a kind of rapids thing that it went round in a circle. And I thought, oh, crap, I'm going to have to follow that. So I went round and eventually got round. And there's a little bit right at the end where it kind of cuts in and there's a little bit of still water. And I looked down and I could see my glasses at the bottom of the pool. So I sort of quickly <laughs> reached down and grabbed them before anyone stood on them. And they were fine. <laughs> and it, but it was oh. just like, yeah, so that's my memory. And it was really grey that day. It was really kind of, you know, I mean... I mean, this is the summer holidays, but it looked like really kind of abandoned and, you know, grey. It, it wasn't the sort of place I wanted to hang around. So, so there you go. I had a feeling you might know something about Southport. Yes. I was, I was, true. 
It's quite a nice looking place. It's a bit like mm. a bit like Eastbourne in that it's, it kind of looks nice because it's the same sort of era. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a, it was a bit dull. So I thought he was going to do that joke about you know the tide went out in 1947 and is yet to come back in, and uh, but it didn't quite <laughs> go that far. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, what else have I got here about Jimmy Rimmer? He recently celebrated his 73rd birthday. Um, he joined Man United in 1965 and made 34 appearances in nine years. 34 appearances in nine years um, until joining Arsenal in 1974. And he was on the bench during the 1968 European Cup final, which Man United won 4-1 against Benfica. Uh, he was Bob Wilson's long-term replacement at Arsenal, and he was their first-choice keeper from 1974 to 77. When Terry Neal became Arsenal manager at the start of the 76-77 season, he brought in Pat Jennings from his previous club, Tottenham, and Rimmer was then moved on to Aston Villa in time for the 77-78 season. He was at Villa for six seasons, winning the league title in 80-81 and the European Cup in 1981-82. But in the 82 European Cup final, he was injured after only nine minutes, replaced by Nigel Spink. Do you remember anything about that? I remember watching that on that night. No, because again, I hadn't he was watched too football at that point. I, thought, <laughs> so. I just wanted to check in. So I didn't want to carry on. You say, excuse me, I, I watched that game. So I, just thought I, rem- I remember just Nigel Spink playing for Aston Villa against, I think it was Inter Milan in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and I <laughs> think he was like the substitute keeper at the time, but he'd been brought in for some reason. I don't know. That's as far as my spink, um, spink knowledge news goes. My spink <laughs> knowledge. Um, Rimmer is one of only two players to win the European Cup with two clubs, but he only played nine minutes of football to earn both medals. How about that? Um, <laughs> he left Villa in 1983 to rejoin Swansea City, the team he was on loan to in 1973. He stayed there for three seasons, but he ended his career at Luton Town in 1986. Uh, he made only one appearance for England in the 1976 Bicentennial Cup friendly against Italy, uh, a match that was played at Yankee Stadium, New York, which uh, England won 3-2. Rimmer was substituted after 46 minutes, replaced by Joe Corrigan. So basically, what you have here <coughs> excuse me, is a man who's got two European Cup winner's medals, but only played nine minutes to get both medals. He played only once for England, but it was in the Yankee Stadium in New York. And even then, he only played 46 minutes, which is like one of the most interesting kind of career profiles. And yet, with the greatest respect to Jimmy Rimmer, he doesn't seem to have done a lot to actually earn all this sort of credit, if you know what I mean. It's quite, it's it's quite David, glorious. The David May of the 80s. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. And he, he moved back to Swansea to enjoy his retirement, and he continues to live there to this day. So that's uh, Jimmy Rimmer. Um, what have we got on Bruce Grobelar? Um Bruce David Grobelar. Let's not go too He's far got... into Grobelar, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I fear I may have to. In, the... in a brown envelope. <laughs> <laughs> in the interest of balance, I may have to fill that analogy out a little bit. But anyway, um, Bruce David Grobelar, born in Durban, South Africa in 1957, started his career in uh, his club career in 1973-74, playing for the Zimbabwean side Highlanders FC. Uh, he attended a scouting camp organised by Vancouver Whitecaps and he was signed by them in 1979. That year, he visited family friends in England and he had a trial with Ron Atkinson's West Bromwich Albion. Um, work permit issues meant that Big Ron couldn't sign him, so Crew Alexandra stepped in and snapped him up on loan one week before Christmas 1979. Uh, in one of, and I love this. In one of his early appearances, he was listed in Crew's matchday programme as Bill Grobelar. <laughs> 
which I may now have to refer to him as from here onwards. I just think that's a much better name. Um, Grobola was signed for Liverpool for a quarter of a million pounds in March 81, and he replaced Ray Clements, who moved to Tottenham ahead of the 81-82 season. This match that we're seeing him in here was his fifth one ever for Liverpool. Um, he made his debut for Liverpool on the same day as Mark Lawrenson and Craig Johnston, uh, but uh, the match finished as a 1-0 defeat away to Wolves. Liverpool's opening half of this 81-82 season saw them struggle and much of the blame was apportioned to Grobelar and his inconsistency between the sticks. Or to put it another way, he wouldn't stop rambling and wandering around the penalty area when he should have been staying on, on his goal line. <laughs> uh, by the end of the season, he'd won the League Cup and the League Championship with the Reds. By the time he left Liverpool in 1994, he'd won six League Championship winners' medals uh, he won the FA Cup three times, the League Cup three times, and the European Cup in 1984, the latter of which he won despite an affliction which caused his legs to lose their rigidity. Um, Grobelar moved to Southampton on a free transfer in 1994, and he spent two seasons at the Dell, but it was while he was there that the Sun newspaper accused him of match-fixing while at Liverpool. Along with John Fashnew and Hans Sagers of Wimbledon, he was charged with conspiracy to corrupt... Grobelar pleaded not guilty, saying he was only gathering evidence with the intent of taking it to the police. There then followed two successive trials in which the jury couldn't agree on a verdict, and he and his co-defendants were cleared in November 1997. Grobelar sued the son for libel and was awarded £85,000, but the son appealed. The case went to the House of Lords, who agreed that uh, specific allegations had not been proved, but also felt that there was adequate evidence of dishonesty. The Lords subsequently slashed his award to one pound, the lowest libel damages possible under English law. Um, And he was also ordered to pay the son's legal costs, estimated at half a million pounds. Ouch. Yes, Grobelar was unable to pay the cost and he was declared bankrupt. Uh, Grobelar continued his playing career, went uh, on from Southampton to Plymouth, then he went to Oldham Athletic, then Chesham United, then Bury, then Lincoln City, and then fifth tier Northwich Victoria, where he played one game during the 1999-2000 season. Uh, he then returned to South Africa, where he enjoyed success as a coach of a number of teams. And at 44, he became the oldest player to play in the South African League. Uh, he was twice player coach of the Zimbabwean national side in 1997 and 1998, and once claimed that he hopes to one day return to Anfield as manager of Liverpool FC. Stops, looks at watch. Um, these days, he crops up now and then on TV as a pundit around the world, and he still hopes to keep his hand in as a coach wherever he might be wanted. Um, Grobelar, I remember a big deal being made about him when he arrived on the scene. Cause it was just like, I mean, for me, I just thought, who is this guy? Where has he come from? Is this like from Zimbabwe or something? It's not like he kind of worked his way up through the English football system. It's, it was, but obviously a character, as uh, as people tend to refer to him. I love Grobelar. I thought he was ace. Yes. Um, yeah, Absolutely. I really liked him. Obviously, he was the goalie when I got into football, so he was, for me, Liverpool's goalie. I just thought he was great. You know, you need people like that in the game. Um, yeah. Not necessarily the, the sort of bribery bit, you know, <laughs> let's just gloss over that. Um, but yeah, but no, I just I thought he was great, and I thought he was really good for the game. It sort of raised the profile of it. Just going mm. back to my earlier David May comment, I was just doing some reading up on David May while you were doing that. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it says, um, May was named on the bench for the Champions League final and is remembered for the way he led the celebrations after the match despite not playing one single minute. 
of the Champions <laughs> League season, the whole season. <laughs> Um, but then it says a, f- a popular chant with the crowd was David May superstar got more medals than Shearer. <laughs> <That's, laughs> that just sums up uh, football, doesn't it? It's like you know you can yeah. not play a single minute of the whole thing, get the medal, and like Shearer who like you know, dedicates his entire <laughs> life got nothing. You know, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, dear, I just. I remember there's a, one of the things I sort of read in the research. I think it was um, that. When he was, he had this trial at West Bromwich Albion, and he thought, "Oh, right, so Ron Atkinson, he's going to come and see me." And um, oh, I think it might be when he went to Liverpool. Maybe it was when he had trial at Liverpool. So, and what he used to do at that point was when he came out to do the pre-match warm-up, he would go into his routine of doing handstands and stuff. It was I don't know if you remember that from at the time. He used to do handstands and all that kind of stuff, muck around with the goalposts and the crossbar and all this sort of stuff. And um, so he thought, "I'll do all that." And um, and that'll impress the the manager. And apparently, the, I th- like I say, I think it might have been Ron Atkinson, or actually, yeah, I think it was Bill, it was um, uh, Bill uh, Paisley, Bob Paisley. What's it? Bob Paisley. I can't. I had a complete blank. I was thinking <laughs> Bill John, Bob Paisley. It was when he had his trial at Liverpool. Bob Paisley, and apparently Bob Paisley didn't come out to see him do all that stuff, and and he actually went off early and didn't see Grubbler even playing. And um, yeah. I think it was only because. Um, number of other people sort of had a word with him and sort of said, look, actually, this, this guy, this Grobler guy, he's good. You should actually sign him up. And he, oh, okay, and then they, they signed him in the end. But apparently all his handstands were for nout at the time. So, uh, yes, quite quite the character was our, was our Mr. Grobler. <laughs> um, there we go. And anything else that you spotted there during the, the first game? Um, one thing I, I did spot, and, and I'd spotted it before on other um, grounds, not so much now, but... In the eighties and the nineties, I made the note of why do, why were goal mouths on a mound in the eighties? <laughs> because yeah. when you look at the goal mouth and you look at the lines behind, like the, basically the, the the pitch lines, they hmm. sort of move up, and the, the goal mouth yeah. is like on a mound, and it's like. But I noticed that I think Crystal Palace used to be a lot like that, and Everton hmm. I think were another one. And I just what what, what was that all about? I just, I've never understood because surely the pitch should be flat. Well, yeah, but you're quite right though. Yeah, that was um, that is something you used to see from time to time. Very kind of odd, quite honestly. So um, yeah, I don't know what that was all about. Um, but yeah, um, and then the only other note I wrote was I put full time shit match, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> it wasn't, but it was just funny. Um, yeah, it was just I just thought it was amusing how they obviously it was nil nil, but they had to kind of make the best of it and keep talking about it as if like oh, but. But the two fine goalkeeping performances, which they were, yeah. it, it has to be said, but um, that was what they referred to. Um, did you ever go to Anfield? I think I might have asked you that years ago, actually. Did you ever go to Anfield? No, I didn't. No, I had the chance oh. to, but I was too scared. Because, <laughs> my, again, my, my relatives used to sort of like, every time I went up there, they'd go, oh, come on. And this is in the days of the cop. So I could have stood yeah. on the cop. That could have been my claim to fame. But then he'd tell me like all the stories about, you know, how the, the yellow river and sort of and the, the crushing of it. And I'm like, you're not selling this to me at all, you know. And and yeah. it was before I realised the significance of the cop as well. So no, I never went. Um and I, and to this day I still haven't been to Anfield. Um but then I'm not a Liverpool fan, so I will not I have no need to, you know. Although that's it. I've been to Old Trafford before, but that was um that was a works thing where we got, where we got a it was a bit David May that was actually. It was um, my my mate and and the boss of the department had worked on this project with this company for like a year, 
and at the completion of it, um, they had like a, a seat in the sort of executive boxes at, um, at Old Trafford. Mm. So they said, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll take you up for a match then. So it was against Bayern Munich, um, but my boss couldn't go. So I went instead. <laughs> I had nothing to do Super with the project sub. whatsoever. Yeah, literally the David May of uh, corporate <laughs> hospitality. <laughs> oh, nice. That's good. It's always nice when these things happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the match, uh, we then get the sort of summing up afterwards, and uh, Jimmy Hill suggests that we take another look at Jimmy Hill's at uh, Jimmy Hill's at Jimmy Rimmer's best saves uh, using a fascinating new technique known as a camera behind the goal. <laughs> um, he points out Liverpool's current problem with scoring goals and their perceived lack of confidence, and he also suggests they've been lacking a Steve Highway type player who can surge at defences and unlock them before showing a clip of Kenny Dalglish being deprived of the ball by an Aston Villa player. <laughs> Pathetic. Call yourself a replacement for Kevin Keegan. Uh, finally, <laughs> do nothing that lad. No, he, he's, he's destined to be forgotten by history. Um, finally, Jimmy Hill leaves the last word to Jimmy Rimmer himself to talk about posts and crossbars. Uh, Rimmer says, "Well, they always say hits the post, the bar, but that's what they're there for in it. If it beats me, it's good judgment." If it gets the post or the bar, you know. I mean, people say it's the post or the bar, but we do these things. I mean, Bruce knows that if it hits the post or the bar, it beats us. But it hasn't beat. It's it's not gone in the net, has it? And and this is what it's all about. Great words there from... I, th- I think um, it was either Jimmy Hill or, or Bob Wilson that then summed it up and said that they, the um, yeah, basically following the view that the post and the bar are part of... The uh, defensive arsenal, yeah, the armory. That was it, yeah, of the goalkeeper. <laughs> okay. yeah, and they train with that in mind. Mm, yeah, yeah I, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Bob Wilson then introduces a second match, which is from the second division of the football league: Norwich City against uh, Newcastle United. Newcastle fans bred on the feats of stars like Jackie Milburn and Malcolm McDonald expect great things from the man wearing number nine on those famous black and white stripes. The latest player to fill the role is Emery Varadi, who ironically might have been playing against them today. Norwich so this one, um, in, to put things into context, Norwich had been relegated from Division 1 the previous season. They finished 20th of the 22 teams, along with Crystal Palace and Leicester City. Newcastle, however, had finished 11th in Division 2. They were sort of stuck in Division 2 at that point for a few years. Um, prior to this game, Newcastle were in 19th place in the table. Only one win from their first three games. Norwich... They were seventh with seven points from 12. So, once again, the kits, Rich, on this one. And this, I'm sorry, I have to jump in here because I've said this probably countless times on other podcasts. That Norwich City kit was the one when I was a kid. I'm a, like, I'm a West Ham fan and I was besotted with that Newcastle kit because it was, uh, with that Norwich kit, I should say, because it was Adidas. It was the new pinstripes thing. And it just, I just, I thought it was like the bee's knees. It was like the best thing ever. But And compared to the Newcastle, which is all right, you know, Umbro and all that, but it just looks so great and modern. But what did you make of the two kits on show in this one? Uh, no, I totally agree. The The Norwich one looked ace. Um, and I loved as well, they had like a panel on the side of the shorts. Um, mm, so they had yellow, no, red uh, red shorts, <laughs> green shorts. <laughs> Um, but they where the Adidas stripes were, they also had a, like a, a panel either side of it, which looked mm. really nice. And again, sort of a modern touch. And and again, exactly the same as the the Liverpool and Villa match. The the opposition's shirts, so Newcastle in this case, just looked really dated. I and mean, they still had a, I think theirs was an Umbro design. Um, yeah. Norwich was Adidas. 
And and again, the Umbro design just looked so old. It was like it looked like that scratchy old material. It had a big flappy collar on it, and it just looked like it was like the end of the seventies rather than the early eighties. So it's yeah, yeah, it is really interesting to see that transition period and and sort of see the you know which manufacturers were kind of going for it. But yeah, the Norwich mm. kit does look really nice, and it's of course it's a sort of silky proper sort of shiny material. So it looks it looks it. proper boss like. Oh, I just loved it. All those new shiny kind of kits that were coming out and. Adidas were just, they were bossing it at the time, I have to say. Um, the Newcastle tracksuit tops you might have seen, they, on the back of those you had the circular Newcastle Breweries star logo on the back, which of course that star logo would end up um, on the front of the shirts in uh, successive seasons. But uh, yeah, just saw that as one of the players was warming up on the on the pitch side there, running up and down. Um, the ball, it was one of those red stripe balls I mentioned earlier on, I think a Sondico one, which... I quite liked at the time. Nowadays, it slightly bothers me because when you when the ball rolls, if it rolls a particular way, you see that red stripe kind of going round and round and round, and it's it slightly distorts, like it's like an optical illusion. It distorts like how the ball is flowing and rolling on the pitch. But um, quite a novelty, really. I didn't really like it. I always thought that looked really dated. That ball, um, mm. and I don't think time has been that kind to it either. It just looks. It's a very odd sort of look, really. Mm. I don't it think it's one that's ever been sort of necessarily repeated or kind of, and I, I, can, I can see why it's just a bit strange, really. I vaguely remember a few people, like managers, football managers at the time, saying, "Look, I, I don't like these balls because when the ball's in the air and the player's going up to hit it, he's got to, like I say, the, the stripe kind of rotates in a way that makes the eyes kind of a bit confused." <laughs> and uh, sure enough, I think it was only ever used during this season. It didn't last anything beyond anyway beyond. Uh, it's good to see that blaming the ball for things is, uh, you know, a tradition that's been there for a long time. Indeed, indeed. Um, pitch side advertising boards on this one. Um, what did you find? I found two great ones. One, uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, so one of them is Commando Kills. <laughs> Zing! That's a number one. Two um, words in capitals, in kind of military-style capitals, <laughs> but. You kind of don't know what it is, and then it's like no. underneath. I think it says wheat and barley, so I'm assuming it's it says, a beer or something. You know. Well, yeah, I thought that. Yeah, it says in wheat in barley. Oh. So, so I thought. Well, it sounds like exactly what you said, like a beer or a drink of some sort. But I thought wheat. So, what is it? Like a cereal or something like that? Or you wouldn't have barley in a cereal, so. What is also it? Commando we need to know. kills, and it's like yeah. there's a kind of there's a kind of dagger there, almost like the kind of the SAS Who Dares Wins sort of logo, yeah. you know, over there. So I didn't actually look at what it was. I I I, I wondered if you had, but yeah, it's just Not really. More, yeah. And again, that was kind of on the halfway line, almost. Yeah, it's yeah. like Commando yeah. kills, you know, it's in massive letters. <laughs> what? What's this? What service is this advertising? If that was like twenty years hence, you'd think, oh, it's a video game or something. But it's like. Commando yeah. kills. If that is a beer, that's quite a fierce name for a beer. Like you know, well, yeah. Uh, I'll have a bottle of uh, Commando <laughs> kills and uh, a gin and tonic for the wife. Well, bearing in mind as well, in the in the sort of early eighties, like you know, beers didn't tend to have sort of funky names like that. That was sort of very much the sort of probably nineties thing, really, kind of mm. giving beers <laughs> yeah. trendy names and stuff. You know, like craft Two beers dogs. and things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but the other one that I, I noticed that I just absolutely loved, I mean, this is something I have looked it up and, and I, uh, there's no evidence I can find of it, was R.D. Brooks and Son Stone Enamelers. 
yes. What? I, I saw that and didn't write it down, but yes, I did see that. I was like, it, was that a big deal? Was it in those days? There was a lot of stone enamelers that were going around? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, okay, I mean, are they talking like stones as in precious stones or just stone? <laughs> yeah, I think. And why, I think it must be why like, is it so important to stick enamel on it? Did, was there a fashion in those days for like, you know, if you were sort of like, you know, remembering a loved one at the cemetery that you had to have a, like a plastic coated headstone or something was it what? I, I don't remember that at all I, I wouldn't post anything past the 80s <laughs> uh, i mean all the all the usual names of smirnoff uh, vodka makita power tools uh pontins and pontins holidays i saw which was a nice uh went on a few pontins holidays in my time um dane pack bacon again yes i noticed dane pack that that i think dane pack was at um anfield as well yes yeah and uh dr martin's Airwear footwear. Yes. It's nice yes. to see the old Dr. Martin's been there. But as much as anything, uh, there was no sight that gladdened me more than that of the Invercar, uh, pale blue car, the vehicle for disabled people, which you <laughs> saw in the far left-hand corner. And that was, as soon as I saw that, I thought, ah, oh, it's the old days. I love it. <laughs> I missed that. I, I didn't see it, I'll be honest. Did you not see it? No, I it, missed I, it. Because that was, you see like loads of those at um, Stamford Bridge. There was always millions, like a whole well, fleet of them. The weird thing with Stamford Bridge is they were parked directly behind the goal because obviously yes. there was like in the old Stamford Bridge, there was like a massive dog track around it. I think it was a dog That's track, right. wasn't it? Yeah, um, I think so. Or a speedway track or something like that. I think. Yeah, it certainly wasn't an Olympics track anyway. Um, but yeah, so they used to have like, the old Stamford Bridge, and we're talking like, well, actually, up until the sort of early, up, up until the 90s, really, yep. um, used to have a massive, it was a huge oval behind the goal, and the actual mm. terracing was a mile behind the goal. So yeah, you used to have all these cars parked behind it. I mean, you used to get that at Wembley as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yes, the old pale blue Inver cars. This, I think I ended up writing an article about that as well on the old you did. Uh, um, attic thing, um, blog site. So. Yes, but if anyone knows what Commando Kills is, get in touch. That's another one. We're, we're putting that out there for you, the listeners. You can get your name mentioned on this podcast if you know the answers to things like that. So do get in touch with us. We'll tell you how you can do that later on. So there we are. Um, the referee was Clive White of Harrow. Uh, he was a senior linesman in the 1977 FA Cup final. He was the referee for the 1982 FA Cup final. Uh, he went on to referee one match in the 1982 World Cup, which was uh, Belgium against Hungary. And he was a linesman in two other matches, Soviet Union against New Zealand and Poland versus the Soviet Union in the second round. Uh, he looked to have a promising career ahead of him after that. But in July 1982, he was convicted of deception, according to Wikipedia, citing a, an article in The Guardian at the time. And he resigned from the league list after receiving a fine of £1,500. I wonder what that was all about. Deception. Not a good look for a referee. <laughs> anyway, Actually, one are. thing I did notice about the referees was the referee, uh, George Tyson, in the first match, had the old England crest on his yes. um, thing, which was quite common. But the one in the second match had a FIFA badge mm. on his jersey. And I was like, I didn't know why. Again, I don't know if there was any particular reason for that. Um, or if it was just you know one of those things, just grabbed what happened to be there. <laughs> yeah, I think so. George Tyson, I think, um, did end up on the FIFA list as I mentioned earlier on, but maybe he hadn't at that point. Whereas um, uh, Clive White of Harrow uh, obviously had, and he had the badge to prove it by God. So uh, yes, there we are. Uh, described by commentator Alan Parry as one of the best in the business, and that, obviously that was before all the nasty business about the deception. <laughs> um, 
Alan Perry, um, one of your uh, more favoured commentators. I'm a bit unsure about Alan Perry. Uh, I don't really have an opinion on Alan Perry. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't really remember much of his of his work, of his body <laughs> of work, <laughs> of his oeuvre. Um, yeah, I think he's one of those ones that he just fades into the the kind of list of secondary commentators. You know, mm. you have your, your top people like Motson and Moore and and um, and Barry Davis and all that, and then you've got your secondary ones who always commentated on the second matches. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think I've said before, Gerald Sinstat was my all-time favourite of those because he was rarely seemed to do the top match, but he was always there in the roundup or or the yes. um, or the second match. And I love Gerald Sinstat's voice. Um, Me too. Uh, so yeah, Alan Parry was just one of those secondary commentators that yeah they they did a job. I've got no real opinion on them. I, my memory of Alan Perry, he's, as you hear on this commentary, he was quite sort of competent. He just, you know, he got on with it. He did his job. He did it well. But I seem to remember when he went on, he got he uh, got the job with Sky Sports when Sky Sports was taking off and they signed him up. And at that point, I sensed that he started to get a little bit sort of cocky with his commentary. I'm trying to make little smug, smart little jokes. But I don't know if that was just a perception that I had, but... And at that point, I sort of thought, no, I don't want you doing kind of little aren't I funny jokes and just just stick to commentating. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's left a nasty sort of taste in my mouth. But mm-hmm. again, listeners, if you have an opinion, let us know. Do you like Alan Perry's commentary or not? Do get in touch. Um, so um, we get the lineups again. And of course, we get uh, a sighting of the uh, young 20-year-old Christopher Roland Waddle there mm-hmm. at the uh, bottom of the list for Newcastle United. Um, Norwich no longer have Justin Fashionu on their list he went to Nottingham Forest but they do have uh, future England goalkeeper Chris Woods in goal and I always found it a bit of a funny sort of thing as a kid when Norwich goalkeepers because they wore green shorts they'd wear the green top so they look very green uh, as goalkeepers go the the Norwich goalkeepers uh, so um, it's a bit strange but uh, yeah a young Chris Woods there as well and uh, Alan Parry's intro he picks out Imre Varadi as the uh, latest player to sport the famous Newcastle number nine shirt following on from people like Jackie Milburn etc etc um, I think he was only at uh, Newcastle a few years in Ray Variety, but he sort of um, became a sort of fan favourite even though he didn't quite reach the heights of Jackie Milburn uh, and uh, I don't recall seeing him much in this match either but that was again it's one of those gambles that a commentator has to make he sort of has to pick out a player and say look he's good keep your eye on him but um, doesn't mean to say they're going to play very well, of course. So, uh, what did you spot during this game? Anything in particular? Um, not a huge amount. It was a fairly... I mean, just like I said before, despite um, actually it ending 2-1, it was... I don't know. I just I found it... The actual match, I found a bit boring myself. Um, hmm. It was nice to see Arthur Cox in the flesh and not as a Panini sticker. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think we talked about this before. In, the 80, in, in Football 87, the most common sticker was Arthur Cox. Um, <laughs> and it, so it was nice to see him actually in the flesh and not on a, on a sort of flat piece of plastic. Um, <laughs> Along with Jim Smith, presumably. Uh, yes, and Jim Smith, yes, of course. The two, the infamous. Um, <laughs> Jim Smith. Uh, Greg Downs, it was nice to see him pre his Coventry days um, yes. doing all right there. Um, yeah, and, and, and just like you mentioned, Chrissy Wadler uh, looking about 13, <laughs> bless him. <laughs> yeah. Lots of hair. Yeah. And and quite cu- sort of smartly combed and all the rest of it, but uh, yes. Um, of course, Waddle scored the first goal in this match. Um, uh, apparently, Newcastle's first away goal for eight months. 
You lucky Newcastle fans. It was a crap goal as well, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sort of bundled I mean, it over the line. Chris, Chris Woods forgot how to be a goalkeeper and sort of forgot <laughs> that he's allowed to use his hands and sort of fumbled the ball directly into two Newcastle players' sort of pass <laughs> and then Waddler just smashed it into the net. Smashed it in from one yard out. Yeah, Good exactly. <laughs> Actually, it was interesting to see um, some uh, some uh, like kind of foreshadowing as quite a few times Waddle hit shots across the goal, which didn't quite go in. I was thinking yeah. of Italia 90. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was thinking that as well. Yeah, we see uh, Dave Watson scoring for Norwich. He equalised with a header, making it 1-1. Uh, lovely sight at one point. There was, uh, we see uh, the, I think it was Newcastle, was it Newcastle player? Barton? I can't remember who, which side he was on, actually. No, I can't think. Uh, but he was on the ground injured, and um, the, there was a sort of ground-level camera looking at him. And in the background, you see this guy walking around the outside of the pitch with a trolley. It looked like a tea trolley of some oh, sort. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> but it wasn't oh, a, a tea trolley, because there, was, there wasn't... Yeah, it didn't have, a, like, a tea urn on it or anything. It was, I thought, no. where's he going with that? What's that? Tea urn. Hey. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. Uh, dear. And... Um, a couple of lovely moments where players had a shot and it fizzed past the goal and nearly hit people. Um, first one, there was where stewards had to duck pretty damn sharp when uh, Norwich's Mark Barham unleashed a shot. Um, and then near the end of the match, um, the Newcastle player, John Brownlee, unleashed a, a rocket of a shot and it's going straight for a, a, a policeman who's standing behind the goal. And all he does is just casually, casually lift one leg to let the ball go under him. Like, and it just hits the fence behind him and goes, I thought, well, that's casual for you. That's, uh, he didn't just like dive out of the way. It's, these policemen, they've, they've just got a good idea for how to judge these things. The long leg um, of the law. The lo- indeed, Sorry. the raised leg of the law. Um, <laughs> Newcastle's Mark Carney sort of uh, foreshadowing the best work of Diego Maradona. He used his hand to clear the ball uh, in his own penalty area. But to, when you see the replay, he was... It's, not even entirely sure whether he was in the area or not, but the referee gave a penalty for that, and of course it was uh, hit the post. Norwich hit, hit the post with that, um, and then um, much was made by Alan Perry of the Norwich player Ross Jack, who headed over an seemingly an open goal from inside the six-yard box, but he was challenged by Newcastle players. It wasn't the easiest; it wasn't quite as easy as it was made out. Well, the thing as well with that particular one, from from the angle that they originally showed it on, it looked like the ball was actually going to go in anyway. And if he'd have left it, it would have gone in, you know, because he'd sort of chipped over the keeper. But when they showed it from behind the goal, using the behind the goal camera, which they liked, (laughs) um, you can see that it it wasn't probably going in at all. And actually, it wasn't that easy a shot to get because you had to nod it down and it was because it was quite high in the air. So, Mm. but yeah, it's just like angles and everything. (laughs) <laughs> yes indeed and um, Norwich substitute Andy Hart um, he had his entire football league career captured in this programme because um, he came on as a substitute and he only played 17 minutes in this match and that was the only 17 minutes of first team football he played for Norwich and then moved on to non-league team Galston Town uh, so uh, basically he picked the right moment to come on for Very Norwich well, a Champions he- League medal <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was I was a key member of that team. He probably had it taped on his VHS at home, and um, and uh, he's now got his entire league career there for his grandkids. Um, and uh, the aforementioned Ross Jack popped up to score the winner from a header to make it two one. So Norwich won that one. Final scoreline: Clare Road, Norwich City two, Newcastle United one. 
Um, and then we get the summing up back in the studio. Jimmy Hill surmises that all four teams featured in today's episode were playing positive attacking football to the very end, which he reasons must be because of the new three points for a win system. Uh, if only we knew who came up with that system, uh, we'd shake his hand. <laughs> or stroke his chin. <laughs> Indeed. And the two managers, Ken Brown and Arthur Cox, are asked whether the possibility of winning an extra point had any influence on the game. And they effectively say, probably. Um, with that, we get uh, the news section at the end with Bob Wilson. And um, this was a... I quite like the news bit at the end because they give you enough as a kid to kind of keep you interested in what was going on in the game. So... Um, so Richest Bob Bob Wilson tells us that none of the 92 clubs in the Football League have now got a 100% win record after four weeks of the season. Mm. Um, uh, the quality was high that season. Um, and he then reminds us of the teasing headline at the start of the programme regarding the absence of John Robertson from Nottingham Forest's match against Stoke. Uh, we're told that Brian Clough sent him home from the team hotel after an incident... Uh, which meant that uh, they hurriedly had to get in touch with Colin Walsh and ask him to familiarise himself with the A50, a bit sharpish if he wanted to play that afternoon. Uh, Walsh, to his credit, got to the Victoria ground barely half an hour before kickoff and went on to score Forrest's first goal in their 2-1 win. Robertson, meanwhile, given a rare afternoon off, decided to go and watch Notts County instead, an act which turned out to be in no way futile, given that they lost 4-1 to Ipswich. <laughs> Bob Wilson, ever the eager news hound, spoke to Forrest's assistant manager, Peter Taylor, who told him in no uncertain terms to piss off as it was an internal club matter. <laughs> um, quite an injury. It was, it was, there was a sense there that they were trying to make a big deal of something that wasn't that big a deal. Did you get that impression? Yeah, it was, a, yeah, after an an incident, you know, it's a incident, kind of, yeah. which we don't know what that was. It's like, yes, <laughs> and we're not going to know either. And Peter Taylor has made very clear that we're not going to find out what it was either. <laughs> I, I did like that because that's typical of the sort of Clough era, isn't it? He's like, yeah, shut yeah. up, you know, I'm going to tell you. This is between <laughs> me and him. <laughs> and also, I think it was mentioned at the start, it said um, Robertson, who'd put in a transfer request. And I had a look and he didn't leave Nottingham Forest until 1983. So he was there for quite a while longer after that. <laughs> And was a much respected member of the Nottingham Forest squad. I'm led to believe was, a lot of players said he was one of the better players, one of the best players Nottingham Forest have ever had. So, must have been a, a mild skirmish with the boss. That a he had a mild point. incident. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and with that, we get to see a caption showing the top seven clubs in the Football League First Division. And uh, what do you know? West Ham United at top of the table, lording yeah, it this, over the other. This episode was picked at random. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was genuinely was. I, I was as surprised as anybody. Whatever. <laughs> uh, lording it over the other twenty-one clubs after a massive five games that, that, <laughs> thus far in the season. Uh, West Ham led by goal difference from Ipswich on 11 points. Then it's Southampton on 10, Swansea and Tottenham on 9, Forest and Man City on 8. And uh, as was often the case at the time, one of the numbers on this caption board was placed just slightly too high, thus adding to the charm in this pre-computer age. Did you ever used to see those where they put up the tables and some of the numbers are a little bit wonky? (laughs) Probably some poor sod had to spend hours trying to align that by eye to get it level and it still wasn't quite right. Uh, we're then told about Manchester United's Gary Birtles, who last scored in the league exactly a year ago for Nottingham Forest. Bob Wilson quotes Birtles, who exclaimed gratitude and appreciation at the fans' patience during his gold drought as the camera zooms in on a photograph of the player in a manner suggesting he's a serial killer on the loose that's being searched for by the police. <laughs> he just zooms right in on his eyes, like you know, just trying to get into his soul. These eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the eyes of a killer. Yeah. 
And we then see another um, caption showing the bottom nine in the first division, all a bit random, um, three of which are Arsenal, Manchester United and Liverpool. Uh, bottom of the table is Wolves with four points from possible 15 and just above them are Middlesbrough on goal difference. But spare a thought for Everton, says Wilson, who will be playing against Notts County next week with defender Mick Lyons in goal. Both of the regular keepers, Jim Arnold and recently signed Neville Southall, are injured. So it's on with the green jersey for Lions. Um, I checked this and apparently Everton won that game 3-1. I presume that mm. Mick Lyons was playing. Also, if he did, he must have done rather well, I would have to say. Um, in Division 2, we see that Sheffield Wednesday are top of the table, a point ahead of Luton, three ahead of Grimsby, Watford and Norwich. Uh, Wednesday would go on to finish fourth at the end of the season, while Grimsby avoided relegation by just two points. Uh, Luton, meanwhile, ended up as Division 2 champions that season. Uh, we then see Swindon leading Division 3. They ended up getting relegated eight months later. And uh, Bournemouth are the leaders in Division 4. They did end up going up at the end of the season in fourth place. And finally, it's the Pauls news. And there's a very good chance of someone claiming the jackpot as long as they've scored 22.5 or 23 points on their coupon. Uh, the numbers are 2, 20, 31, 30... Oh, I don't know. Who cares? Um, and with that... Jimmy Hill trusts that we've enjoyed this edition of Match of the Day and says, thank goodness there's no noisy fire alame this week to disturb the peace of the programme. What was that all about? I think I presume he means fire alarm. I thought he was said fire alarm. <laughs> but he, yeah, he sort of said it in a strangulated sort of alarm or something. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I guess there must have been a fire alarm on the last show. <laughs> I think there was. I have a vague recollection of seeing it on one of those kind of clip shows or something. So I think there was. I haven't been able to find it on YouTube, but I think that's kind of. I that, I that really like the fact that on the uh, pools thing they had a thing. It said telegram claims required for pools win. It's like <laughs> telegram. <laughs> Jeez, not even like on the back of a postcard. A telegram. Telegram. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> I have. Think- I have won the pools. Stop. Please give <laughs> me money. Stop. <laughs> I'm at Marbella Airport. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Have have sold the house. Stop. (laughs) Left wife and kids. Stop. (laughs) Please stop. Uh, (laughs) Have run away with woman at number 48. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, I didn't see that. It was always telephone claims and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, didn't see the telegram. Use your email for God's sake. Oh, no, you couldn't. (laughs) Um, And uh, then it's the end credits. We see some slow motion action from the Liverpool Villa match as the credits roll, ending with the sight of Jimmy Jimmy Rimmer leaving the field with a mighty puff of the cheeks. Um, No Barry Davis on this one, I noticed. Uh, Well, actually, do you know what I did notice in the uh, credits? Production team, Brian Barwick, or Barwick. Barwick, yes. Who, of course, went on to be chief exec of the FA. Of course, that's right. I I thought I recognised the name. Yeah, he used to be always on the credits at the end of Match of the Day for a long time. And uh, yeah, of course he did. I'd forgotten all about that. But he was Remiss head of ITV me. Sport and BBC Sport and stuff. So, That's right. And then it's just, but obviously I would have never known him from that. And then just suddenly it's like, oh, Brian Barwick. Or Brian Barrick, Barwick. However you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Dion so there Barwick. we go. So um, that's it. That was the uh, the episode of Match of the Day from Saturday the 19th of September, 1981. Um, end thoughts on that, Rich? Uh, it was fun watching it again. Like I say, it's really bizarre that there was no roundup or anything. But I guess, I guess, it's because of the lack of cameras, like you said, it wasn't. It's not like a case where now they send cameras to every game and then they choose who's going to be on. It's like, mm. um, it's like a case of yeah, we've got three cameras. In fact, we've got 
one camera and a behind the goal camera. Um, and <laughs> yeah. it's only behind one goal. And it's <laughs> so bloody expensive, so we're going to use it. <laughs> exactly. Outside broadcast. Where are we going to send this? So, so yeah, it was um, yeah odd not to see a roundup on it then. Literally just two matches. And also strange to see a match from the second division getting, you know, it's weird. Like obviously, now match of the day is so focused on the Premiership. It's like... You know, you obviously. I mean, okay, due to contracts and stuff, they would never show them that. But even in the even before it became the Premiership, I'm pretty sure they didn't show lower league stuff on Match of the Day when I used to watch it in the sort of late '80s, early '90s. I, I don't honestly know. I can't remember. Well, there was a period. I don't know the exact years, but I know I've got a feeling it was maybe in the years following this, or maybe it was the late '70s um, when they had like there was a quota they had to show a certain number of games from division three and division four and they did that for a short while and actually i thought that was quite good because you would get to see your i don't know the Tranmere rovers of this world and the scunthorpe uniteds and the whatever and more by luck than judgment perhaps but they often would find really good games in those lower divisions i know it sounds vaguely patronizing but but I don't think they did it very often. They, they only did it maybe for a few seasons, and it might have been a, an edict from the football league saying, "Oi, if you're going to show football, there's four divisions in this league. Show some of our smaller teams." And, yeah. and so they maybe did it under sufferance, possibly. I don't know because they tended to show that more on Football Focus, a lot of those mm. sort of lower division stuff. But yeah, indeed. So, so there we are. So uh, now then, what are we going to do this? is we're making this first episode of the Football Attic Rewind completely free to access because we want you to have a listen and and see what you think, of course. But uh, after that, what we'll probably do in some fashion is we'll ask you to support us on Patreon in order to access the podcast instantly. So for a small fee every month, uh, you'll be able to hear each new episode straight away the moment it's been made available. And that small small donation will help us to pay for research material, which hopefully in in turn will make the... uh, the, the, the podcast more detailed and more interesting to listen to but um, don't worry if you choose not to support us on Patreon that's fine as well uh, it will just mean that you'll eventually have to sort of wait probably for about a month to hear it but we're, we're, we're sorting these things out we've rushed into this admittedly but that's just because we were keen to sort of get on with this we're still trying to iron out all the details but we'll let you know um, how we're going to do this but this one's on us it's a free episode and we'll let you know in due course how things pan out uh, now um Following us on Patreon, if you do follow us, it will mean that you get to hear any sort of bonus podcast we record, and you'll also get to have a say in some of the episodes of Match of the Day or the big match that we end up reviewing. So um, there will also be a few other benefits, I dare say, that we'll try and throw in. Anything we can think of, we'll pass it your way if you are a Patreon supporter. So uh, that's essentially what we're hoping to achieve with that. But meantime, you can send us your feedback if you like. We'd love to hear from you. It was always the case when we used to do the Football Attic blog and the podcast. It was just wonderful hearing from people like your good selves who would send us feedback. So if you've got anything to say about this particular episode of Match of the Day that we've been talking about, or indeed Match of the Day generally, or the big match, uh, if you want to tell us about Kenny Dalgleish and how he should calm down a bit. Um, Are you a stone enameler? (laughs) <laughs> are you indeed are you a stone emma and uh, do you know what that uh, commando thing was that we mentioned earlier on <laughs> very strange uh then uh, do get in touch with us you can send us an email because we're, we're sort of nostalgic about communications methods as well if you want to send us a long message you can get in touch with us at admin at the football um our patreon page is patreon.com forward slash football attic and we're on twitter which is most of the time uh, manned 
quite successfully and uh, brilliantly by Rich at uh, twitter.com slash attic. I get on there as well sometimes just to sort of throw things out, but uh, uh, that's always on the go. So if you want to drop us a line there, just get in touch with us and, and just say hi or tell us what you thought of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Or send us a telegram. <laughs> or indeed tell us telegram us and uh, yeah. Don't forget to uh, use the word stop instead of a full stop. <laughs> Otherwise, the people at the GPO will get very angry. Uh, but, but I reckon that's about it from this first episode of the Football Attic Rewind. Thanks, Rich, for your, your company. It's been lovely talking to you and, and being in the attic again. Indeed. It's a nice, comfy place to be. I'm glad we left these beanbags up here because, although I don't know how I'm going to get out of it now, so I might just have to roll across the floor and fall down the hatch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyone want to buy a ZX81? That's all I'm going to say as we... Uh, <laughs> I'd just like to know how you got it to do news, you know, without making that horrible screeching loading sound. Honestly, they're more powerful than you think, these ZX81s. They're really good. <laughs> I'm surprised Did they went out of fashion. Know? Did you know? Now, here's a fact. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Space Shuttle, which actually first launched in 1981, um, uh, had <laughs> about as say. much onboard computing power as a BBC Micro. As a mobile phone is the is the version I've heard. That's balls. Because you like couldn't the, the, get like you couldn't get Flappy Bird on the on the shuttle. <laughs> Flappy Bird. Flappy the old, Bird. Contemporary yeah, but, reference there. Welcome yeah. to twenty sixteen. We're covering all eras here, I tell you. Uh, anyway, hope you enjoyed all that. Do join us again for another football attic rewind very soon. But for the time being, from myself and Rich Johnson, it's goodbye to you all. Goodbye. Goodbye. Chartist 81, you get volume 2 absolutely free. It's madness. Now pass the blame. Godly and Cream and Human League. Michael Jackson and Ultravox. Toya and Shaking Stevens. It's your party. 38 sensational tracks. Two albums for the price of one. Chartist volumes 1 and 2. A gift from KTEL.